As everybody's greeting one another, as, this, as, uh, as we're greeting, I, I just would like to draw your attention to the back of the sanctuary. You'll see Krista back there. Today is Krista's birthday. Everybody say happy birthday to Krista. Cambria is not in with us today. I think she's teaching uh, with the children, but it was her birthday yesterday. So happy birthday to you guys. Man, I'm um, so glad to be here this morning, and I'm, I'm super excited and grateful to introduce a really good friend of mine. I'll do that in just a moment, but I want to bring greetings from uh, beautiful Crestline, California, where I was uh, just a few days ago, or just a day ago, um, just right up here in our mountains where our men were together, and man, we had an awesome time. There was something about just the buzz of guys being together, um, and, and together for a purpose, right? Together to worship Jesus. How many of you know that, I mean, I went to the women's worship night, just full disclosure, I was sitting right there in the back, kind of hiding out, taking it all in. But there is something to, when a bunch of guys are together, they're like singing to Jesus at the top of their lungs, it's just remarkable, right? And the power of God's presence that was in that room, um, Ben and Christian just led us so well. And I think they were gracious to us guys. They, they dropped the key to every song. So it was like any song they trying to find that, we we're just singing guy style. It was awesome. And, um, and, and the teaching was tremendous, the times of ministry. So I think our guys are going to come back really filled. And, um, and so that's, if you're, if you're seeing the holes in the seats, that's a, a lot of the men that are up there now. Uh, but it was an awesome time. Um, and before, again, I, I am going to introduce Trent, but I do want to take a moment. I don't, I don't see um, Maddie here today, but I think the Kehoes, as we've been praying for them, I know they're preparing um, for a very serious surgery that, that Maddie will have um, up this week. And so as a church family, I know it's meant so much to Maddie. Um, um, if you don't know her, she's a, a child here at our church, but she's so special. Every child is special. Um, but Maddie just has something about her that draws people. And she has a tumor in her brain that'll be um, being operated on. And, uh, and it's meant something to her to know that each one of you are praying for her. I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago, um, we all gathered around and we laid hands on her. And I think that's an image in her mind that she knows that the Lord is with her, but she knows that she's not alone. And so um, God's been leading their family and giving them great wisdom as to how they, they undergo the, getting the right care, the right surgeon. And there's a whole story, um, Jonathan could tell you all about it. But um, coming up this week in San Diego, they'll be having that surgery. So can we just take a moment and um, maybe get a little uncomfortable and pray with the person that's next to you? And let's just ask the Lord together for the Kehoe family, just for his favor and, um, and for healing over Maddie's brain and wisdom for the surgeon. And then I'll, I'll wrap us up. So let's go to prayer and uh, take a moment to pray for the Kehoe's. Lord, we thank and praise you for your faithfulness, for your healing power, Lord, for um, the stability that really does come in you. We pray over Maddie now. We pray your peace to be over her mind and her heart, Lord, that you would bless her, you would keep her. 
Lord, I pray that you'd bring healing to her. And I pray that anyone who comes near her would just sense the overwhelming favor of the Lord that rests upon her, that they would treat her with special care, that they would look intently and deeply into her case. God, that the surgeon's hands would move with just stellar ability because you're leading those hands and that they would be an instrument of your healing touch. Lord, be with this family now, God. Watch over them. You know everything they need before they even ask. But we're asking you together, Lord, to just meet them, to provide for them, to give them all that they need, and to bring a healing touch to Maddie. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, thank you all for for praying. And um, I was sharing with the men that I think it was somewhere around 1993 or four or something where I, I too, had really long hair. And... uh, I met a good friend, and we were studying together at the University of the Nations in Kona, Hawaii, which is a university attached to Youth with a Mission. And we became fast friends. We both had a real passion for Jesus, and we liked to have fun. And, um, and so we found ourselves for many years after, still to this day, um, having adventures and laughing a lot, but also um, just experiencing the presence of God and, and finding um, what the Lord is doing all over the world. And so I've, I've had a chance to be with Trent um, before he was married. He, was, he knew me before I was married. He has lots of secrets and things about me, and I too have them about him. So um, we kind of have an agreement there. But um, we've got to share the gospel in places like Nepal, to be in places like Singapore and and West Africa and and travel with the founder of Youth with a Mission who took time to speak into our lives and mentor us. It's like a a dream, really, a a dream kind of friendship. And um, and the, I think probably, Trent, the most important thing that I could say about you is that you are a follower of Jesus. And to have an authentic friendship where um, I joke that there's someone who knows everything about me and I know about him, it's because we call each other when there's times of temptation. We call each other when there's times of, of need for prayer. I call it my lifeline. I'm like, text, I do, I need a lifeline right now. And to know that there's a, a brother on the other end. And so Trent and his family now um, serve in, in Kona, Hawaii, um, where he is a uh, director of training there for Youth with a Mission, given a lot of responsibility to, to take care of a lot of young people who are passionate for Jesus as well. And I'll let him introduce his family, um, but we have the privilege as a church body to support Trent and his wife Bronwyn. We have for many years, and we're really proud of you guys. We're proud of the work that you're doing, and, um, and we're excited to have you share with us today. So would you welcome Trent Shepherd? Thanks, brother. I got one right here. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, Pastor Daniel. Um, I only know Pastor Danny as Daniel, by the way. And uh, so I will try to discipline myself to call him Danny, but I cannot promise it will happen. And um, but I just want to say what a joy it is to be here in your 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 new building. Um, this new structure. I know you've been in here for a little while, but I've not been back since uh, you moved in here. So it was, a, it was an absolute joy for me this morning when uh, Daniel was showing me around the place and I was getting to see things because I remember this very differently. And, uh, and so it is a joy. And the thing is, there is so much change in that physical reality that you're in, and it's beautiful. But I want to tell you this, I still sense that same beautiful spirit of the Lord that has marked you as a people and as a congregation. And, uh, and I'm so glad that with all of the right and wonderful changes 
um, that you entered into, at the same time, that heart of what it means to be this body of people, it remains. Amen? It really does. And I, I felt it as I was getting to see friends uh, who I hadn't seen in a while and hugged them. I felt it when I got to hang out with, uh, man, with up at the men's retreat, that testosterone overload <laughs> this, uh, this weekend. But such a good time uh, to be together and to dig deep with one another. And uh, I just want to bring you a lot of warm aloha uh, from Kona, Hawaii. And I bring you aloha from uh, YOM's University of the Nations campus, um, where I serve there in leadership. We just welcomed, uh, goodness, just over 700 new students this last quarter, all the way from uh, like Mongolia to Micronesia. And everywhere in between 35 different nations. Isn't that exciting? Uh, 35 different nationalities um, who are there. And, and I bring you greetings from them. Um, we, every quarter in Kona, um, we have this place called the Plaza of the Nations. And we raise the flags of all of the different nationalities that are amongst us. And if you were to go there right now, um, you'd see all of those amazing flags. Um, but you'd see that they are actually flying at half-mast right now. And the reason why, uh, and uh, Daniel just mentioned this, the, the founder of Youth of the Mission, a dear brother, friend, mentor, teacher, uh, leader in the faith named Lauren Cunningham, just went to be with Jesus on October 6th at 88 years old. And, uh, and man, he was faithful to the end, truly. A few nights before he went to be with Jesus, his wife awakened in the night to hear him in his dreams telling, we don't know who he was saying it to, but saying, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And uh, in, in his dreams, I mean, he was faithful to the end. And, um, and but our, our flags are at half mass because we're just honoring uh, his life and his legacy. And on November 4th, uh, just next weekend, we're going to have a big celebration of life service. And, uh, and then the next day, we're going to raise those flags again uh, to say, man, that this mission, this calling, it goes on. It goes on. Uh, the Great Commission is not dependent upon a person. It's not dependent upon an organization. Uh, it's not dependent upon even a church. It's dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers all over the world. And, uh, and it is such a joy to be with part of that family here this morning. And uh, so I bring you aloha from, from our YWAM work there in Kona. And also, man, I bring you aloha from Heilani Congregational Church, uh, the little local Hawaiian church that I'm a part of, uh, that we do a lot of our service actually in Hawaiian. Um, and, you know, our, our worship in the morning, it, it's, it's usually like four ukuleles up front is what it looks like. And uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. Daniel's going to be with us uh, next weekend. He's coming in for the Celebration of Life service and is going to be preaching at our church, just to remind you, dude. Um, and uh, <laughs> so I'll try to behave because I know you can pay me back next week. Um, but um, I bring you greetings from them as well. And, uh, but most importantly, I just want to bring you aloha from my family. I brought a picture of them so you could see them. I've been married to my wife, Bronwyn, for 18 years. Yeah, you can applaud. Um, and, uh, and we've got three children 
um, Maria, Blaze, and Petra, who are 14, 12, and 9. And I'm just awkwardly looking at that picture. I don't know why my mouth is open like that. I, I need to get another picture. My wife is the one in the middle, by the way, okay? And, uh, and I wanted to tell you about her for all sorts of reasons. But one of the things I wanted to tell you, because it relates to the way that you support us and, uh, and, uh, and look after us and help enable us to do what we do. My wife grew up in Turkey. And uh, so uh, a missionary kid, her family's been there for 35 years. And uh, her father passed away when she was 15, um, but her mom is still there. And uh, so 30, 35 years on, her mom is right there serving the Lord in a local Turkish church. And so we get to spend a lot of time in Turkey. And um, in the summers is when we try to go and serve that church and work at a kid's camp and, uh, and get our kids kind of connected to their roots in Turkey. And a few years ago, some of you who I know and you'll remember, I wrote a book about the life of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. And what does that mean for our humanity? And, uh, and this summer, much to my surprise, I didn't even know it was happening, but they took my book, Jesus' Journey, and they translated it into Turkish. And so that, on the right there, uh, that box of books, it's, it's in Turkish. And, uh, and it's, the, it's the first time my book was ever translated, and my wife didn't know either, actually. A ministry there contacted the publishers, and they wanted it to, to be in Turkish. And, uh, and then the next picture, what I want to show you, is this young woman in the middle. This is the first Turkish believer who ever read that book in Turkish. And, uh, and she was a new believer. And she just sat with me and talked about what it meant to, to think about Jesus in a different way. You know, Turkey, you guys, is 99.9% .9 Muslim. And that's really the, that was the birth, that's the cradle of the church. The seven churches in the book of Revelation, they're all in the nation of Turkey, ancient Turkey. So much of the New Testament unfolded in Turkey. It has this rich, rich biblical and Christian history. And now, 99.9% uh, .9 Muslim, and, and that's when my, my wife's family is working there, sharing, uh, sharing the life of Jesus. And, uh, and so for this book to get to go to that space, I can't tell you uh, like what it means for me. It goes to places where I can never go. And uh, my Turkish is awful. <laughs> I mean, I know a little bit, um, but not a lot. And, um, and, and, and it gets to go there. And, and honestly, and I, I wanted to tell you that because like the, what you guys do for us as a family uh, how you've commissioned us and how you support us, it enables stuff like that to happen. It, it enables that young woman, and there's a lot more now who have read that, um, but to, to get to experience that in Turkey. And so I mean it when I say this to you. Thank you um, from our family. Thank you from our church. Thank you from our mission um, for who you are and what you do. We are, we are grateful to get to be in it with you. And um, I know that you have been in a series on the Gospel of John, and, uh, and this morning, I want to talk to you a little bit about Jesus and family. Jesus and family. And, uh, and what Jesus' own interaction with his family tells us about our interaction with our family. Now, as it relates to the series you're in, in the, gospel of, in the Gospel of John, a few years ago, the Lord used the Gospel of John really powerfully in my life to help me see Jesus with new eyes. And it's actually, in some ways, it's what set me on the journey of writing this book, uh, Jesus' Journey. 
And uh, what happened was I was reading through the Gospel of John, and you know, all the, the Gospel writers, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all tell Jesus' story a little bit differently than the other one. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell their stories pretty similar. Um, they, they've got similar different accounts, and, but they all have a different perspective at the same time. And John is really unique. It doesn't sound a lot like Matthew or Mark or Luke. It's written by someone who's been reflecting on these things for a long time. And, uh, and I love how the Gospel of John unfolds. And so a few years ago, I actually probably about 20 years ago, that's a sign of my age, the gray in my beard. When I say a few years ago, then I go, wait a second, that was two decades ago. Um, but about 20 years ago, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, I'm reading through the Gospel of John. And I'm, I'm, uh, and I'm asking a pretty big theological question, to be honest with you. I was asking a question about why Jesus was crucified. And I was trying to understand that and let it really get into me. And so I'm reading this passage. It's in uh, John 19, and it talks about how that Jesus is on the cross. And, and it's explaining there's this group of women at the foot of the cross. And depending upon how you read it, it's kind of hard to tell because of how John says it, but it's either three or four women. And, uh, and it describes the women. It talks about Jesus' mother is there and talks about Mary Magdalene is there. And most of us, if you've been in the church, you know who Jesus' mother is, Mother Mary. We know who Mary Magdalene is. And then it describes this other woman, and it says it describes her as uh, Mary's sister or Jesus' mother's sister. And it really struck me when I read that in the Gospel of John. And the reason why was because I knew who Mother Mary was. I knew who Mary Magdalene was. But I didn't know who this other woman was that it was described as Mother Mary's sister. And so I was sitting there, and I'm thinking about it, and I go, wait a second. That's Jesus' aunt. You know? Mother Mary's sister, that's Jesus' aunt. And for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit used that in my life, and, and I, I, it was like it dawned on me for the first time. I went, wait a second. You're telling me Jesus was somebody's nephew? Jesus was somebody's nephew? And, and at that point, I wasn't married. I didn't have children of my own, but I did have nephews and nieces, and I adored them. And I especially loved it when my brother or my sister would tell me stories about them. And uh, near that time, my sister was telling me a story about my youngest nephew, whose name's uh, Hunter. He's, uh, he's older now. Um, but he, uh, at, at that time, man, he was like a, a little kid. And, uh, and, and I loved it, especially when they would tell me awkward things that my nephews and nieces would do. And so one day on a Sunday morning in church, okay, Sunday morning service like this, the preacher had been going on for a little bit too long. And my nephew, who's about four or five at the time, he actually stands up in the pew. Okay, so you can imagine this setting. I'm preaching. I've been going on too long. And a five-year-old kid stands up on a pew and out loud says these words, can someone fast forward this thing? <laughs> and you know, my, my, uh, my, my sister was like, oh, Hunter, sit down. You can't do that. Now, I'm the uncle, though, and so when she tells me that, I'm like, what an awesome kid, okay? Because that's what's amazing about children is they say the stuff that we all want to say, you know, <laughs> that we're all thinking. And, um, and so when I'm thinking about the fact that Jesus has an aunt and he's somebody's nephew, what dawns on me is that someone felt about Jesus what I feel about Hunter. Someone felt about Jesus in that way, like what I felt about Hunter. And you know what happened? All at once, Jesus became more real to me. Now, I have been raised in the church, 
So like I knew all the right answers. I knew all the stories and that stuff. But all at once, something different happened. And, and Jesus became more real. He, he wasn't just like a theological argument or something to be won anymore. He wasn't just this bizarre figure floating through history 2,000 years ago claiming to be God. He was somebody's nephew. He was somebody's nephew. In that moment, man, this, uh, this great Christian idea that Jesus somehow is fully God and fully human, that whole thing of him being fully human, it started to get into me. And it began to change the way that I read the gospel accounts. It was in no way that I abandoned the conviction or the belief that he was fully God, but I began to see that he truly was fully human as well. And it got into me in such a depth that I went on and I, and I, and I wrote an entire book of rereading the gospel accounts through that lens, through that understanding. And one of the things that happened along the way is that it gave me new eyes, especially for Jesus and his family, how he interacted with family and what that meant for my family, what that meant for my relationships. And it, it transformed me. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that as we open your scriptures this morning and we look at this beautiful picture of how you interacted with family, Lord, that it would give us faith for what you want to do in our families. That it would give us hope for, for things that seem overwhelming. That we would find strength and courage, King Jesus, in your body and in your blood, in your humanity. That we would find courage in that. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. A few years ago uh, in Israel, they found a sarcophagus. And I'll show you a picture of it. A sarcophagus is like a, an ancient way that they would bury people. And, uh, and usually what they would do is that if someone like even, and this would have been true for Jesus if he would have stayed in the tomb, actually. Um, but what they do is when someone died, if they were a well-known person, they would put them into a tomb. And, uh, and then that, uh, after about a year or two years, that body would decompose and everything. And then they would go back inside and they would collect the bones and they would put them in these boxes. They're like bone boxes. The technical name is sarcophagus, but they put them in these bone boxes. So a number of years ago, not too long ago, actually, they discovered in, uh, in this uh, one section there in Israel, they discovered this bone box and they knew that it dated back to the first century. And on the side of it inscribed these words, not in English, of course, but inscribed on the side were these words, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. Now, as you can imagine, uh, man, that got really exciting for people in the archaeological community and biblical studies and everything. And people were going, wait a second. Could this be an actual link to the person of Jesus? Like, could, could this actually be a bone box from his brother? Now, to give you some context for James, James, the brother of Jesus, we know from how the gospel accounts and then the book of Acts unfolds, Jesus' brother James becomes basically the primary leader of the early church for a period of time. So he was very well known. And, and, and so people were thinking, man, is, is it, was there a bone box or something that was created for him because he was so well known? And could this be a living link 
to that actual person? And could that be a link to the actual person of Jesus? And there's all sorts of excitement that went down over this. Now, it turned out, actually, they discovered a a short while into this, that it was actually a forgery, okay? The bone box actually did come from 2,000 years ago, but those words that had been inscribed, it was a really good forgery. (laughs) And it took them a a while to to determine that, but they determined, oh, man, somebody like, somebody did this in their garage, for crying out loud, you know? (laughs) And uh, they were professionals at it. They were going to try to make a bunch of money. And, uh, but it turned out to be a forgery, actually. But it did raise some really interesting questions about Jesus and his family. Just raise those questions again, because we know that he had a family. And it raised those questions of what was that like? And when we talk about Jesus' family life, we've got to remember that most of his life did not actually look like what we see in the three years described in the gospel accounts. Now, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? That most of his life didn't look like those three years that we read about in the gospel accounts. What I mean is this. A few years ago when I was writing this book, Jesus' Journey, I went through and I basically took all of the stories that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell. And, uh, and it, it accounts for about three years. They, they start when he's about 30 years old. Luke tells one story when he's about 12 years old. But most of the stories start when he's about 30 years old. And and if you add up all of those stories, if you add up the different spaces Jesus and his friends went to, he taught in this place, he did that at this place, and all that kind of jazz, you add all of that up, here's what you're going to discover, okay? The gospel accounts tell you about 100 days of Jesus' life. That's what Matthew, Mark, and Luke account for. They tell you about 100 days of his life. Now, here's the crazy thing about the gospel accounts, okay? Jesus, we know because it tells us that he lived for about 33 years, before he was crucified, and then he resurrected, and then he ascended to the Father. He lived for about 33 years. Now, 33 years, that's 12,000 days. The gospel accounts tell us about 100 days of his life. And the thing that's so stunning about that, it's not how much the gospel accounts tell us, it's like how little they tell us. Because the obvious question, you guys, is this, what was Jesus doing for most of his life? (laughs) What was he doing for most of his life. You know what the answer is? The stuff that you do. The stuff that you do. Most of his life looked like most of your life. You know, one of the reasons that we know that is because after he begins his ministry at age 30, when he shows up in his hometown, do you remember how people responded to him? Anybody remember? They get upset with him. And they go, who does this guy think he is? Now, why do they get upset with him? Because he's not been doing that stuff before. They know this kid. He grew up in Nazareth. I actually got to go there for some of my studies. I got to go into that area in Nazareth in Israel last year. And uh, and you guys, in Jesus' time, it was a village of no more than two to 300 people maximum. Imagine that. Two to three hundred. So they knew this kid. And that's why when he's age 30, after he's been baptized by his cousin John, then he goes into the wilderness. And then he comes out after 40 days and begins to teach and perform miracles. Yet they, they kind of freak out at first because they go, wait a second. This kid is acting differently than he was before. This kid is acting differently than he was before. 
So let's look at some passages together that give us a little description of what this was like, especially for his family. Matthew 13, verses 54 to 57. Matthew 13, verses 54 to 57, I'll read it. He came to Nazareth, his hometown. When he taught there in the synagogue, everyone was amazed and said, where does he get this wisdom and power to do miracles? Then they scoffed. He's just the carpenter's son. And we know Mary, his mother and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. All his sisters live here right among us. Where did he learn all these things? And they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his hometown and among his own family. So what can we learn about Jesus' life from this passage? Number one is this. Check this out. From what we can tell, Jesus had at least four brothers and a number of sisters too. Okay, at least four brothers and a number of sisters too. Another thing we can learn about this is both his family and his community that he grew up in did not completely understand Jesus' deepest identity. They didn't know or understand exactly who he was. And one of the reasons we know this is because they are amazed by what he's saying and doing in this story. And what that means, like what I said before, is it means that he's not been doing and saying stuff like this before. And so they take offense at him. So it's important to understand, just like Matthew 13 describes, his family and his community don't get it. They don't initially understand what is at work in this person, Jesus. And the last thing I'll say about this particular story before we look at another story about Jesus' life is by this point in Jesus' life, it's most likely that his stepfather, Joseph, who was the, you know, the father-like figure who raised him, most likely at this point in Jesus' life, Joseph has already died. And the reason we think that is because he, although Mary's talked about in the gospel accounts, Joseph is not. And I draw down an important principle from that. Check this out, okay? It is very likely that Jesus was raised by a single mother for part of his life. It's very likely that a part of Jesus' life, because of how Joseph doesn't show up in the gospel accounts later, it's very likely that Jesus was raised by a single mother for part of his life. So if you're a single parent, if you're someone raised by a single parent, let that give you some hope. <laughs> Jesus turned out all right, didn't he? He did. And in fact, that it seems that the Holy Spirit even used this in a deep way in Jesus' life to grow him even closer to his heavenly father. Let's look at another story. This is in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. I'm going to keep looking. Oh, there it is. Okay. I thought I'm just going to keep looking up here awkwardly until it magically appears. Okay. Now look at this. This is a stunner story. Some of that moment when Jesus' ministry is really growing, and this is what it says. The crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. And what that means is Jesus and the disciples are working so hard that they don't have time to eat. Now look at what his family said. When his family heard it, by the way, we know who this is. It's not like distant cousins or something, because the next part of the story makes it clear. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him. They're talking about Jesus. They went out to restrain Jesus for people were saying he has gone out of his mind. He's lost his mind. 
His family comes to restrain him because they're so concerned by what Jesus is saying is doing. Imagine, it's as if they stage a family intervention in Jesus' life. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever felt deeply misunderstood by someone in your family? Have you ever felt deeply misunderstood by someone in your family? Maybe when you first came to faith. Maybe an important family member even says something like, are you out of your mind? Think about it. Like, think about that. Jesus knew what it felt like to be deeply misunderstood and wrongly judged by those he loved and respected the most. He knew exactly what that felt like. Now look at how Jesus responds to this, though. Right after that, Mark 3, verses 31 to 35, look at what Jesus says. Jesus' mother and brother, after they staged this intervention because they think he's lost his mind, they came to see him. They stood outside. They sent word for him to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Look how Jesus replies. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him and said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now let me clear about what is happening in this moment. Jesus' intention in this moment is not meant to hurt his blood family. Although I think those words probably did hurt his family. Jesus' intention in this moment is to extend the family of God. Because that's what he came to do. His, mo his words, even though they're strong, they're not meant to hurt or wound his family, although they probably did. His intention in this moment is actually to extend the parameters of family. Because that's what the son came to do. Now think about this. What's the principle? Jesus knew what it felt like to speak the truth to his family in love. Even though he knew it might wound them. Jesus knew what it felt like to speak the truth to his family in love, even though he knew it might wound them. <laughs> Don't you want that kind of wisdom and love to be active in your life when it comes to your family? Because speaking the truth in love is not easy. It's not easy. And sometimes it can be really costly. And we know that it was costly for Jesus. John chapter 7, verses 3 to 5, tell a story about Jesus' brothers. This is what it says. At a high point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus' brothers, it's talking about his blood brothers here, came to him, and this is what they said. Hey, leave here and go to Judea, where your followers can see your miracles. Okay, now you got to hear the tone of their voice. It's one of the challenges in the gospel accounts. It's like just ink on paper, so you can't always hear the tone of the voice. But the way it's written, his brothers, this is all, it's like a scoffing term, okay, a scoffing way of saying it. Leave here. Go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. Now look at what John says here. For even his brothers did not believe in him. For even his brothers did not believe in him. And it doesn't just stop with his brothers not believing in him. 
See, just a few chapters later, when John is telling us about Jesus' crucifixion, you remember I was talking about how his, his mother and his aunt and, and Mary Magdalene, all of them are at the foot of the cross. Other than his mom, Mary, none of Jesus' immediate family, that the brothers and sisters, are there at the cross with him. At least that's how John tells us. They don't seem to be there. It's just Mother Mary. And this may be one of the reasons why Jesus entrusts the care of his mother to John in that moment. You see, the eldest son's responsibility in the family, when, when Joseph, the, his, his uh, father figure in his life, when Joseph died, Jesus is the elder brother, he becomes the responsible member of that family. And you've got to imagine the relationship between him and his mother. I mean, you've got to imagine that relationship. It is such a beautiful picture of family. Jesus literally has the weight of the world on his shoulders. And what does he do? He takes care of his mom. Not because he and his mom had a perfect relationship. She was in that group at one point that apparently came to restrain him. We don't know what's going on there. Not because they had everything perfect. But because that was his responsibility. And when he looks around and there's no other family members there, this is what it says. In John 19, verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and then the disciple whom he loved, we think it's a reference to the author John standing beside her. This is what he said to his mother. Woman, here is your son. And he says to that young man, son, this is now your mother. In other words, you got to take care of her. You got to take care of her now. Think about that. From what we can tell, other than his mother Mary, the rest of Jesus' immediate family were nowhere to be found when he was being crucified. And you've got to imagine that that added to the immense suffering that he was facing. Jesus knew what it meant to be abandoned by his family when it felt like he needed them the most. Jesus knew what it meant to be abandoned by his family when it felt like he needed them the most. And that could have been the end of the story, of course, you know? Like the name of the, the message could have been Jesus and his broken family relationships. <laughs> Honestly. If it weren't for the resurrection, you guys. Like for real. That could have been the end of the story. The brothers and sisters nowhere to be found. Jesus taking care of his mom, thank God, lovingly through another disciple. But soon after Jesus is raised again from the dead, we discover something absolutely fascinating in the book of Acts. And this is how Acts chapter 1 verse 14 reads. Acts 1 verse 14, it talks about how that after Jesus is raised again from the dead, he's told his disciples to go to this place and to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Now, they don't know exactly what that means, but they know they're to wait and they know they're to be praying, come Holy Spirit. All of these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer. Now, look at this. Together with certain women, look at this, I love it, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. As well as his brothers. It's a little hint in the book of Acts. Now, we can assume, by the way, it doesn't mention his sisters there. This is part of the, just the time in which this was written. It's also why, even though his sisters are mentioned as being there in Matthew 13, their names are not given. It's a patriarchal society. 
And unfortunately, they would give that name to the man sometimes, but not be given names to the women, not because it was right, but because that's the way it was at that time. So we can assume, though, that because Mary's there and the brothers are there, we can assume that the sisters were there too, praying and waiting with the other believers for the Holy Spirit to come on the day of Pentecost. Most amazing of all, you guys, most amazing of all is that the book of Acts goes on to tell us that Jesus' brother James, this one particular brother James, becomes the main leader of the early church after the Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost. In fact, it's this brother James who goes on to write one of the New Testament letters. He's one of the New Testament authors. Another brother of Jesus named Jude writes another one of those New Testament letters. So the obvious question is this, when did Jesus' family reconcile with him? When did Jesus' brothers and sisters who did not believe in him, who said he was out of his mind, who were nowhere to be found when he was being crucified, when and how did those family members make peace with their brother Jesus? You know what's great? The scriptures give us a hint of when it happened. And we get the story in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 38, one of Paul's letters. 1 Corinthians verse 15, I mean chapter 15, verse 3 to 8. Now what is so impressive and beautiful about this, Paul in 1 Corinthians, by the way, 1 Corinthians is one of the oldest letters, okay, in, uh, in Paul's writings. Galatians probably before, but it's one of the older letters. And, uh, and Paul is quoting something in 1 Corinthians, and I love this. He's quoting something that has been passed on to him. So you know the concept of like a creed, like a statement of faith that gets passed on? Okay, so very quickly after Jesus is raised again from the dead, okay, there is this statement of faith that begins to be passed around orally. It's not written down, it's passed around orally. And Paul puts that statement of faith in 1 Corinthians in that letter. Now this is what Paul says, okay? I passed on to you what was most important. What he's going to tell you is it's really important. It's most important. It's the essence of the Christian faith. Before Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written, before the, the, Paul's letters are written, before all of that, this creed, this statement of faith is being passed around. Okay? It's been passed on to Paul, is what he tells us. Christ died for our sins. Amen? Just as the scripture said, he was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day. Amen? Just as the scripture said, now look at how the creed of the statement of faith goes on. He was seen by Peter. He's actually seen by the women first. Okay, we don't have time to hone in on that this morning, but the women saw him first. They call Mary Magdalene, the very first one, the apostle to the apostles, by the way. But for another Sunday, all right? He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. Now look at this. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Okay, why do they say that? You're like, you can go ask them. That's what he's saying. Most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Now look at this and highlight it. Then he was seen by James. And later by all of the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time. I love it. As though I had been born at the wrong time. I also saw him. Paul says. Isn't that part about James just beautiful? Then he was seen by James. We don't know exactly what went on between Jesus and James before the crucifixion, but what we do know 
is that Jesus made it a point. Okay, imagine it. 40 days. For 40 days, he makes appearances to different people. And it's somewhere in those 40 days, those resurrection days, at some point, I imagine because it says then he was seen by James, it looks like James was on his own. Maybe James was somewhere thinking about, oh no, what have I done? Peter's seen him. Mary's been telling stories. All of them are going, you know, Thomas has had his encounter. All, the, all of them had. And James, man, is just covered with shame. He was like, for crying out loud, who's my brother? I didn't even believe in him. James is somewhere on his own, covered by shame. And you know who walks into the room? His brother. His brother Jesus walks into the room. And I, if I was James in that moment, man, I would have wanted to get under a table, you know? I mean, older brother, younger brother things are difficult anyway. But when your older brother is the Messiah, who's raised again from the dead, and you didn't believe, and you're covered in shame, and everybody else has gotten to see him and you haven't, oh, man, what it must have been like. And that older brother walked in the room and he said, James, it's okay. You're forgiven. I know you didn't understand. It's covered. Be free. And I imagine, man, James was like, you know, a pile on the floor. And, and Jesus would have done just like he did with all of those guys who abandoned him, raised him to his feet. Looked him in the eyes. Said, not only you're forgiven, but you got a job to do. You're my brother, man. You got a job to do. There's a movement. It's on the horizon. The Holy Spirit's coming. And it's going to need someone like you, James. You're going to be able to tell stories about me. You're going to be able to talk about what it was like. You're going to be able to lead them into faith in a new way. And he reconciles with his brother. Imagine that scene. Sometimes it is so hard to believe that our family members, especially those who have hurt us deeply and those whom we have hurt deeply, can be saved. And that is why I'm so glad that we have this glimpse of Jesus and James after the resurrection. Now let's just allow the Holy Spirit to apply this to our lives. Family is one of God's greatest gifts, which is why it can wound us so deeply. For better or for worse, family has the incredible capacity to hurt and to heal, to affirm and to abuse, to forgive and to wound, to embarrass and to encourage. And sometimes family can do all of that in the same day. <laughs> Jesus understands it. He understands that reality. He really gets it in his bones. He gets it in his emotions. You cannot heal your family brokenness. But Jesus can. And if his death and resurrection healed his broken family relationships, then there is hope that his death and resurrection can heal yours too. Because there is now a new way to be human in Jesus. 
And with the help of the Holy Spirit, there is now a new capacity to love like Jesus. A new capacity with the help of the Holy Spirit. There is now a new grace to forgive and to be forgiven. Love can cover our brokenness. Love can heal the wounding that is between us. Now, what is one step of response that we need to take this morning? I remember my years ago, I got into a really hard situation with my older brother, and man, we could not see eye to eye. And my, uh, my wise mother, she at one point, he had little kids at that point, and she was like, <laughs> she said, boys, he's like older than me by five years. And I was being such a jerk to him. I was like, I was being so unkind. I was being so arrogant. And, uh, and he was probably doing some, you know, mean things too, but I, I was carrying a lot of it, honestly. And, um, and my mom said, boy, she, he had a little, little kid at that time who was in diapers. And she said, you need to take one of those diapers, like one that has actually been used, okay? You need to take one of those diapers that's full, and you need to dig a hole, and you need to bury that diaper. Now, we didn't think about the ecological effects of that. Sorry, it was a different time. Um, but we buried, we, we dug this deep hole, and then we took that diaper, and we kind of said, you know, this is the stuff that's between us. And we realized we couldn't sort it out. Like, we didn't want to sort that stuff out, okay? We didn't want to go through all that. And some of what we had to do in that moment, we dug a deep hole, and then we covered it with love. And sometimes it actually takes help to do that with someone. You can't do that on your own. Sometimes there are family wounds that are so deep that you do deeply and, and desperately need to talk to someone. And it's not a matter of burying something. It's a matter of bringing something to the light so that it can be covered then by the light. But in that moment for my brother and me, we covered it in love. And here's the amazing thing, you guys, this many years on, my brother, my older brother, he's one of my closest friends in the world. Just like Pastor Daniel, he's this dude who in moments, man, I call. And I don't know what to do. Because the work of Jesus and his resurrection did a work in me. It did a work in me and my brother. Do you need to humble yourself to a family member? Do you need to forgive a family member? Is it that you need to pray for a family member that you have given up hope on? If God rescued James, if Jesus found his brother on the other side of the resurrection, he can find and heal whatever family issue it is in your life too. Amen? Amen. Let's put this last scripture up and then I'll ask Pastor Daniel to come and lead us into response. This is how it says it in Hebrews 2. And let these be words of truth over you for your family and your circumstances. Jesus himself has suffered through being put to the test. And that's why he is able to help those who are being tested right now. Jesus has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. You know what that means? We can come boldly to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help us at the moment when we need it. I'll pray for us and then Daniel lead us into response. Lord Jesus, thank you. <laughs> that we are not alone in the family issues that we face. 
You know exactly what it feels like. You know the experiences, not just in theory, but in your bones, in your body, in your blood. And so we pray now that the deep work that you did in your family through your crucifixion and resurrection, Lord, would you extend that miraculous work into our families by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'd like to invite our our worship team to come back up and maybe even as we keep our eyes closed for a moment. I want to just ask you, uh, as you've heard these words, um, just as a response to the Lord, how many of you just connected with what was said? How many of you just really connected with what was said? As I'm looking around, there are so many. And you you might have seen this. There's a a, a campaign that's out, an evangelistic campaign, and it it, it says, he gets us, right? Have you seen that? It's like some really great pictures that reflect who Jesus is and he gets us. And I want each one of you to know, and I think that was the heart of that message, is that he gets us, right? And as we sing this song, and as I was asking myself this question and connecting with some things, in our um, humanity, in our humanity, we were like, tell me what to do. Like, what, what's my next step? Like, what, what, what's the thing I do? Give me five things to do. Are you like that? Like, I'll do it. You know, what do I need to eat to make this better? What do I need to drink to make it? How do I, what do I read? And here's a simple response today. If it connects with you, invite Jesus into that. That's it. Invite Jesus into that. I want to ask us to dim the lights a little bit as we sing this last song. I promise that we'll, we'll send you out in just a moment, but don't miss this moment. And if we could, if you want to stand, stand. If you want to kneel, kneel. If you want to sit, sit. Just make yourself at home. But as they sing this song and it gives you some space to invite the presence of the Holy Spirit, just say yes to Jesus. Um, You don't have to strive for this. You don't have to make an appointment. You don't have to do a next thing. You just have to invite Jesus right into this moment because he gets you. Does that make sense? Lord, as we look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, we thank and praise you that you meet us where we're at and that you absolutely understand us. And today we're so grateful for insight into your word that shows us how deeply you understand us. Maybe even more than we thought you understood us, how practically you understand us. As we respond to that, to what's connected with us today, we just say yes to you and we invite you in. We know that there's something about the way that you knock at the door of our heart. There's something about the activation of our will to invite you in. And so we do that now, even as we sing this song. Um, don't look for the magic prayer that you have to pray to do that. It's a, it's a communication of your heart, just being honest with the Lord and saying, okay, Jesus, come into this. Help me know my next step. Help me to see what you want me to see. Help me to process the truth that has been told today through your word. I'm gonna invite you to do that as we sing this last song, then I'll pray over you and I'll dismiss you.
you to stand with me. Lord, we stand boldly before your presence, not in shame, but accepted by you, loved by you, and known by you, and seen by you. We respond to your word by just saying yes. We respond to your word by inviting you in to any area where um, you have longed to come, because you do understand us, and you do get us. And now, Lord, I just pray over each one as we stand in your presence. Father, I bless each one. Lord, I pray that you would truly bless them, that you would keep them. Lord, that you would make your face shine about them, that you would be gracious to them. And God, that you would give them your peace. I pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Amen. God bless you.
Did you feel 